Welcome in, everyone, to episode eight of Up and Down, a disc golf analytics podcast. I'm Jesse, joined as usual by Joey. Hello, everybody. We're the nerds who run this thing, and on this episode, we'll be breaking down the 2022 Preserve Championship. But first, Joey, how you doing, man? I'm doing great today. Um, I've been prepping for an upcoming tournament I have at Maple Hill on Friday, and I shot prob- probably the highest rated practice round that I've ever had. Um, so I was really proud of that, and I'm trying to convince myself to not expect that in the tournament, but it but it does leave me with a little bit of confidence going into that. So I'm feeling good as far as my disc golf game goes. Um, it was really good to to watch some some pro tour coverage last weekend. Um, my fiance and I watched the preserve all together, FPO and MPO, which is awesome. And I'm extremely excited about the coverage upcoming. I was very happy to hear that Jomez is doing full coverage for the U.S. Women's, and especially that they're going to have Paige and Kona on the mic. I think that's awesome, and I am extremely excited. Couldn't agree more. How about you? I'm doing great, man. I'm so excited for this episode. I feel like we got a lot of great stuff to talk about for the preserve. I've cracked open an ice-cold root beer here. I got one fat cat cuddled up next to me, so I'm just in a great position. Happy to be here. One more and looking want. forward to a nice vacation next week where I'll be coming out to your side of the world. Yeah. Get I'm, to play Maple Hill and all kinds of other nice courses. So just stoked. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see you and have you out here. And I'm excited to, to try to do one of these in person, um, see what we can up, come up with. And um, I've been thinking maybe we we record a round and on video and maybe we throw it on YouTube and see what people think of that. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I assume, I guess we'd have to choose if we do Maple Hill or uh, one of the Vermont courses, but sure, we'll we'll wing it. We'll see what we're feeling. So. See what we're feeling. Cool. Well, why don't you say we just jump right into our preserve edition of 60 Second Stories, all the biggest highlights from the weekend, but we're going to try to keep all of them to 60 seconds or less. Why don't you kick us off here, Joey? Yeah, so on the MPO side, we had Bradley Williams. So that's a name that has been around for a long time. He hasn't had a Pro Tour win in a really long time. I believe I heard Big Germ say on the Jomez coverage that Bradley Williams won the first ever official Pro Tour event. So I believe that would have been 2016. Um, But Brad's been around for a long time, definitely a well-respected guy, and well-known for being clean and smooth. And this is actually one of the first times that I've seen him on like a full round coverage. Um, so it was really rewarding to watch him play, especially being on the card with some other players that have different play styles. So loved that. Yeah, he's one of my favorite guys to watch for sure. I remember watching him on a lead card at Waco. It might have been 2019 or maybe even last year. But yeah, he's just super fun to watch. And you're absolutely correct that his last win was in 2016. It was the Vibram Open at the time, which is now the MVP uh, MVP Open at Maple Hill. Right. And that event was the first DGPT event ever. Yep. Very cool history there. So as of right now, he's won the, the first and the last Pro Tour event. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. Ricky tried to take him down from the chase card, but came up a couple strokes short, had some troubles on the final hole there. One of the, well, I think each day it played as the easiest hole on the course, but put his drive in a spot that gave him some awkward footing and uh, couldn't quite recover. So right. his good friend, Bradley Williams, takes it home. Yeah. And over on the FPO side, it wasn't too much of a battle. Uh, Paige kind of ran away with it. Um, but the the F- MPO side ended up being a closer battle than I thought coming down the stretch, despite how much of a lead Brad had at the beginning of the round. But that wasn't wasn't quite as true on the FPO side. It was kind of the Paige story. But Ella Hansen, Missy Gannon, Katrina Allen all put up really respectable showings, kind of a battle for second place there coming down the stretch, um, all playing totally different games, and that's what I love to see. Ella Hansen and Missy Gannon both tying for second, five strokes behind Paige. It's Paige's fourth win of the season, which has been nine events for her, and it's her fifth podium. So of her five podiums, four of those have been wins, which is super impressive, and it puts her podium rate at over 50% for the season. Yeah, it's it's insane to think about how dominant Paige is now. Um, she's not that far ahead of Katrina as far as the DGPT standings goes. Um, they've Katrina has a few more events, but she's at the point where they're starting to get knocked off because she's played so many. Um, and, and Paige is right around there too, I think. I think that was her eighth event, her eighth elite series event. Um, so they're neck and neck as far as the Pro Tour standings goes, and I expect that they'll go back and forth depending who who wins week to week. All right. Well, you've heard it here first. Bradley Williams and Paige Pierce, your preserve winners. Let's head into our next segment here, what it takes, and talk about what these two competitors did this weekend that set them apart from the west from the rest and allowed them to take it home this weekend yeah so on the mpo side bradley williams story was mostly t to green so brad was second in strokes gained t to green to ricky waisaki only by a fraction of a stroke and what I really liked about the preserve, and this is a huge props, you know, a feather in the cap for Kalavisca and the, the other course designers, there's a pretty good spread in the top five or six guys as far as strokes gained tee to green and strokes gained putting. And I love seeing that variation. You know, for example, Brad gained 18 strokes in the field tee to green and only three putting, whereas Kyle Klein gained only 13 strokes tee to green on the field and almost eight strokes putting. And he was three strokes behind Brad. So, so quite a bit of difference there. Um, and that's really exciting to see. But as far as what Brad did, he gained most of his strokes tee to green, very similar game to Rick. And the thing that I thought was interesting is in the top five, you've got Brad, Rick, Kyle Klein, Simon Lazat, and James Conrad. Brad was the only one to not go OB at all, and all of the other guys went OB twice, and he did beat Ricky by two strokes. So that's kind of what it came down to was clean golf, getting up and down, you know, getting to the green to give yourself opportunities and not going OB. And that's kind of what people know Bradley Williams for, 
Um, so I, I really like that. And it's cool to see him compared to these other players that played a more balanced game as far as tee to green versus putting like Kyle and James, you know, particularly James gained a ton of strokes in circle two, but his tee to green game was not quite as strong as Brad's this weekend. Um, and, and that was super clean, super awesome. One of the things I like to see here is everybody who finished in the top eight in the MPO had positive strokes gained tee to green and had positive strokes gained putting. Yep. It's just their distributions that are very different. So looking at the guys who finished one and two, Bradley Williams and Ricky Waisaki, Brad was 0.2 strokes less uh, tee to green, but had 0.2 more in putting. The difference, again, just coming down to those two OBs, like you said. Right. But when you go down to Albert Tom, who tied for sixth, he had 15 strokes gained tee to green and effectively zero strokes gained putting. And right. that was still good enough to tie for sixth. So And, and just And there's everything him, in between. Just behind Albert Tom. Actually, not even just behind. Literally tied with Albert Tom. Same number of total strokes. You had Adam Hammes, who gained more strokes putting than he did tee to green. He only had half as many strokes gained tee to green as Albert, but he gained so much putting, mostly in circle one, that they ended up tied. And I think that says so much about the course design here, um, that it creates separation both on the green and getting to the green. There's an opportunity for some OB strokes, and I think it was awesome. Yeah, and both of those two guys that you just mentioned, Adam Hammes and Albert Tom, both only had one OB. So right. the, the difference really was in that distribution of tee to green and putting. Right. Yeah, and then also tied for six, just to mention, we had Ginn and Burr, who was somewhere in between. Um, he had a bit more strokes gained tee to green than Adam, but not quite as much as Albert, and he had no OBs. Um, jumping over to the FPO side, this is a little bit different of a story. This is all about tee to green on the FPO side. So not a ton of separation created on the putting green. So Page was completely dominant in strokes gained tee to green, gaining 22 strokes on the field. The next lowest was 19.5 strokes. Jesse, any guesses as to who it was? Tell me. Evelina. No surprises yeah. there. Tee to green. But Page was still third in circle 1x putting at 80%, which is a phenomenal FPO putting average for the event. So really great to see that from Paige. She's definitely somebody that I think of as a strong putter, but her season average is 73%. So to see her exceed her season average um, was was definitely great. And she was ahead of Owen Scoggins in Circle 1X putting, which is hard to do. Um, so like yeah, I said... Yeah, that's not one that happens very often. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, so Paige was only able to gain 4.2 strokes on the field in putting. Um, and notably, her and Juliana Corver tied for the fewest holes over par on the field. They both only had three holes over par. Um, and Paige only had a couple OB strokes, and that was enough to, to have her win by five strokes. Um, 
so unlike MPO where you had sort of a lot of differences where you could gain your strokes in different ways, this was T to green. You could, Evelina Salonen lost more strokes on the field putting than Paige gained on the field putting. And mm-hmm. that was still good enough for fifth. Yeah, worth noting too, Evelina Salonen also in that group that tied for the fewest holes over par at three. Yes, you're right. I didn't notice that because she had a uh, a triple bogey there. Um, yep. But you're absolutely correct there. So yeah, slightly different as far as the 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 balance and where the separation came. Um, I thought I would note we've been talking about green slugging and what what is a good round or a good tournament. And typically, I'd say a a great showing is anything over like one point three. And anything over 1.5 is like definitely something that we talk about. So oh yeah, hundred percent for sure. Like I, when we first started talking about green slugging and introducing that stat, you had like just a couple rounds on the season that you were talking about over 1.5. We named like most of them that we could find. Yeah, <laughs> and so Paige's tournament average was 1.35. So just to do a quick recap, this is simply a sum of circle two in regulation, circle one in regulation, and the parked percentage. So this number is out of three. So anything near one means on average you're getting into circle two in regulation every single time. Whereas if it's closer to two, that means you're getting in circle one in regulation every time. And if you had a 3.0, it means you parked the hole every single time. So pages 1.35 means she's getting in circle one very often and giving herself a ton of opportunities to get birdies. And when she's third in C1X putting, it should be no surprise that she's going to lead the field in birdie percentage. But as if that wasn't exaggerated enough, Brad's green slugging was 1.68 on the tournament with 89% Yeah, and he's not a guy. No, I don't think of him as like... He's not one of those guys that you think of. That's exactly it. Yeah. I don't think of him as like, man, I'm going to park a ton of holes. I'm going to get up there. But 26% parked, which was first place. And he tied in parked percentage with Tristan Tanner, who ended up in 80th place, 32 strokes behind Brad. Yes. (laughs) So one of the things I noticed about Bradley Williams when I was watching some coverage this weekend, there was a hole, uh, it was on the back nine somewhere, it was one of those big par fives, and there's a tree in the fairway that a lot of the bigger arms were landing next to. And so Kyle Klein tees off, he gets this full flex shot and lands it like right at the base of that tree. And then Bradley Williams steps up and does exactly the same thing. Yeah, they, they, their discs almost landed on each other. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and that was when I was really like, wow, okay. So Brad Brad can hang with these guys that we consider the bigger arms. Right. You know. And, and uh, I had never thought of him in that light before, but I think he's earning that reputation. Sneaky distance for sure, um, which is silly because a guy throws extremely far i just think he's so smooth and so touchy that that's the type of player that people associate him with so i i liked seeing him you know he he was putting great 
and he he put down some massive massive shots yes he did so yes I was a little bit distracted there in middle, so apologies for that. No um, worries. One of the notes I did want to make about the FPO, you talk about the significance of shots gained T to green. So if you sort the field by shots gained T to green, one, two, three, four, five, six, everyone who finished in the top seven is in the top eight in shots gained T to green. Yep. So the correlation there was very, very high. Yeah. And... Worth noting that that the OB strokes did make a difference. Ella Hansen was tied for second with Missy, and she had zero strokes OB. And Juliana Corver as well in that group had zero strokes OB. They were not the only ones. I won't name them all. but Paige Pierce had two. It's something we've talked about before, that she tends to be susceptible to more OBs. But at the end of the day, it doesn't usually hurt her. So I think it's something she's just come to accept as as a part of her game, perhaps. Yeah. And she I'm, usually tends to overcome it anyways. Yeah. Uh, the quick comparison I do in my head to say, you know, was it worth it, is subtract the OB strokes from, from your T to green strokes, right? So that would put Paige at 20 strokes gained T to green, where Ella had zero strokes OB, but only gained about 18 strokes T to green. So it paid off for Paige to be a little bit more aggressive. She She gained more strokes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I think it's time to jump into crunch time. Let's I got to say, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for guess the stat. Yes. Crunch time could be my new favorite stat. It's just <laughs> all the nuggets, they just make it, you smile. You and know? you're you're so good at finding them. So, I'm going to I'm going to leave this section mostly up to you. I'm going to mention my my one crunch that I've got at the beginning here. This isn't specific to the preserve, but it happened because of the preserve, but we've been watching this stat for a while. Gannon Burr is now at 10 events in a row where he finished in the top 10. And I'm pretty sure in the final round, didn't didn't he go into round three in like 18th place or something? Yeah, he, he had a particularly good final round. Um, so he he didn't shoot the hot round Adam Hammes did, but he was he was one stroke behind that. Um, I think Adam Hammes shot thirteen down and Gannon shot twelve. You are correct. Yeah, but that was I mean I think thirteen down was the best round that anybody put up. There was a few other instances of it, but extremely yep. hot tournament. I think Gannon jumped up twelve places to put him in sixth. Yeah, so he was. He needed a really great round to crack into the top 10, and he got it. And in fact, I think he strung together eight birdies in a row. He, he absolutely did, right in the middle of the round between 6 and 13. And that's, yeah, so that's a huge stretch. Going into the round, he was tied for 18th. Yes, I'm seeing it here. He moved up 12 spots that final day. So he's, he's in 18th going into the round, and he starts his round birdie par birdie par par and on the jomez coverage i recall germ and yuli were saying you want to be two under through the first five that's you know the wheels haven't fallen off if you're two under through five right good start and yep that's exactly where gannon was he was two under through five but at that point he said this is not good enough to get me another top 10 i gotta I'm crank lose it. my streak <laughs> yep and then he went birdies 
five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve for eight in a row. Eleven, I think, being one of the harder ones on the course. Pars thirteen comes right back with another birdie, and then finishes with a birdie on eighteen as well. So, yeah, just an absolute firecracker of a round. Monster stretch in there. I I'd yep. say only bested by Adam Hammes, who in the same round shot twelve or sorry eleven down through twelve holes in the middle of his his tournament between holes five and sixteen in round three. He- yeah, went on a streak of six in a row, parred hole 11, which we said was one of the harder ones, and then got right back on the birdie train with another five in a row. Yeah, it's... Whew. I, I love watching Adam Hammes play because I like his style, but he's definitely somebody that I see get, you know, a little tilted sometimes when things things are struggling, but he's really, really exciting to watch when things are going well and he's on fire. He's definitely one of the, like, he's feeling hot type players, and, and that's so exciting. Yeah, his his train seems to have a little bit more momentum than some other people's. And yeah, it's, in both There's definitely directions. a show to it, and you can recognize that he is on another planet. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's something I, I feel about Macbeth, you know, he's somebody that it's just like, I feel like Macbeth can't miss a 60-footer today, you know? Yeah, he's definitely had those rounds as well. Yeah. All right, let's jump into some more stats here. So this is this is a pretty mind-blowing one. I like this one a lot. So over the course of the weekend, in the FPO, 35 of the 54 holes that they played, played over par. Okay. And those 35 holes combined to play 10 and a half strokes over par. So another way that you can think about that is if you shot even par on those 35 holes, you would have gained 10 and a half strokes on the field. If you shot even par on those 35 holes. Okay. Paige Pierce shot those holes 11 under par. Which means that on those holes, she gained 21 and a half strokes on the field. Just the next best on those boy. holes was Ella Hansen, who played those holes six under, which is still extremely impressive. I mean, she still gained 16 and a half strokes on the field doing that. Right. Um, but it was still five strokes back of what Paige did on those 35 holes. Yeah, that's absolutely monstrous. And, I mean, it all adds up, right? That makes sense as to why her her shots gained TD Green was, you know, so dramatically out of place compared to the average of the field. But to hear that she was gaining that many strokes on the hardest holes is makes it all the more impressive. Yeah, and I think we've seen her do this before at OTB Open. It was a very similar story where there were a bunch of holes that played over par and she gained an obscene number of strokes on those holes in particular. And I mean, Paige is, she's got one of the most well-rounded games that we've ever seen in the FPO. So, you know, no, no knock to her game at all, but it seems to suggest to me that a lot of these holes that play over par might play over par. uh, it, It might directly be because of their distance rather than their technicality and i think for 
page, those holes truly are just not as hard as they are for other players because she has that distance. And if that's the only factor, it's much easier for her. Right. If distance is what creates the separation, she's going to be separated. Right. And so we talked about hole 11 on this course being one of the harder holes all weekend. Or actually, here's a better example. Hole 5. Hole 5 was a par 4, if it's the right hole that I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's a par 4, and it's under 700 feet. So if you just put a basket 700 feet away and call it a par 4, everybody in the MPO field would be able to get a birdie on that hole. You know, it's not hard. Right. But it's hard because it's extremely technical, and it's really demanding of precise shots. And so you get this huge score separation on that hole. In fact, only 4% of people in round three in specific birdied hole five, even though it's only 700 feet and it's a par four. But it's just so technical, and that's where you get your score separation. And I'm wondering if in the FPO, maybe it's that technicality is not as much what's playing into the difficulty factor. Right. It's not creating as much separation as the distance is. Right. And and Paige can throw technical shots. I'm not taking that away from her, but I think her skill separation in technicality is not as much as her skill separation in pure distance. Right. And I think, I mean, even particularly on this course, that showed in the people that you, you saw float to the top, right? That did well in this tournament. I, I think... I don't, I don't think of Missy as like a bomber in the FPO, but she does throw far compared to the field. And but the other two, I mean, you had Ella Hansen, you had Holland Hanley, who absolutely crushes the disc. And I'm pretty sure she throws forehands like 400 feet. Yeah, she she threw the forehand on hole 10, the Island Green hole which I, I think it's like 285 from the FPOT pad and a little bit uphill. And she's swinging that forehand like over OB most of the way. <laughs> and I, I will say she didn't make it in. She did go OB in the final round. But the fact that she went for it tells you that she knows she has the distance to, to get there with that. And that's, you know, a 300-foot uphill forehand is not easy. And yeah, all hyzer. Yeah. Right. And to go for it on an island green means that you know she has way more power than that to have the trust to do that over OB, you know? Yep. So, yeah, totally agree. I think the stats show that that the players that had the distance forehand and backhand are are going to gain strokes in the field at least on a course like this. Yeah, absolutely. So, same thing for the MPO, same stat at least. So, in the MPO, 15 of the 54 holes played over par, so a significantly lower number there. And they combined to only play 3.6 strokes over par. So on average, those holes that played over par were not playing as far over par as they were in the FPO. Bradley Williams played those holes 7 under meaning that he gained 10 and a half strokes on the field on those 15 holes, which is impressive. That's like two thirds of a stroke per hole. Yep. He had the best score on those holes in the field with Ricky Wysocki being one stroke behind him there. 
James Conrad, who came in fifth in this tournament, played those 15 holes four over par, which means he actually lost strokes to the field on those 15 holes. And still came in fifth in the tournament, so I can only imagine how many strokes he gained on the field on the holes that played under par. And, in fact, James was the only guy who finished in the top 15 who lost strokes on those 15 holes. Wow. And he came in fifth. So he must have gained a lot of strokes on those easier holes. Yeah, and James was lighting it up putting, particularly from circle Oh, yeah. Yeah, 63% circle that's, two. That's insane. I, you want to know what's insane? Give it to me. Oh, man. Okay, this this is the circle two performance of the year. And I think by the time the season is over, it will not be matched. And it's hard to say that because we've already had a couple performances that were really incredible from circle two. But I think this one takes the cake and I think it's going to for the rest of the year. This is G.T. Hancock. G.T. Hancock, in the first round, went 11 for 12 from circle two. He did not even attempt a circle one X putt. (laughs) So, didn't even attempt a circle one putt. Went 11 for 12 from circle two, which gained him 8.36 strokes on the field in circle two. And to put that into perspective, so up until this point, the most strokes gained in circle two that any MPO player had in a single round was Sam Mingus at 5.8. He did that in round three of the Masters Cup. And GT Hancock gained two and a half strokes more than that in round one and not only that so i said that he didn't even attempt a single c1x putt which means his strokes gained in circle one was just zero his strokes gained in circle two was 8.36 so his total shots gained putting was 8.36 and that number was the uh the most for a single round on this season beating Luke Humphreys 7.89 at Belton. So he beat that number by half a stroke, and it was all circle two. He didn't even gain any in circle one to beat that number. And what I love, you know, you posted an awesome graphic on our Instagram, so everybody should definitely check that out if they haven't already. But it drops off quick for this, you know, across this tournament for, you know, strokes gained putting at the preserve in round one. I mean, it, it wasn't close. You know, by the time you're at fifth place, you're it's less than half as many strokes as GT gained. It, right, it's... and so I'll say two more things about this stat. So in that same round, Ezra Aderhold had a green slugging of 2.00, oh my which gosh. I think is tied for the highest green slugging that we've seen in a single round. Yeah, and And it doesn't surprise me that it's Ezra. Right. And so Ezra shot like 10 or 11 under that round. Not the hot round, but one of the hottest rounds. I think it put him on chase card. And like I said, green slugging of 2.00. And 
the the amount of strokes that he gained tee to green in that round is exactly the same number of strokes that GT Hancock gained just in circle two. Wow. It that's was eight point three six. That's a really good way of of highlighting how much separation GT's circle two performance created. Right? Yeah. Like, what does that mean, eight strokes? But like we talk about green slugging and we, you know, we're over here exaggerating how awesome Brad did with a one point six eight across the tournament, you know, so obviously Ezra's 2.0 is unbelievable. One of the best performances T to green of the year. Yeah. And GT Hancock is matching that with this circle two only putting performance. Right. And the other note that I'll make is that, uh, I had said the previous single round best for strokes gain circle two was 5.8. Yep. Well, in the same round that GT Hancock gained 8.36, Garrett Everson gained 6.5. So he also would have beat the previous high. Oh, that's cool. And that makes GT Hancock's number even more impressive because the field that he's gaining 8.5 strokes over included someone who right. went 9 who for 11 in circle 2, Garrett Everson, and it included James Conrad who went 5 for 6. Yeah. So that field was lighting it up from circle two as well. And he was still able to gain 8.4 strokes wow. on that field. Yeah, just insane. Unbelievable. All right. More stats. So I mentioned Ezra Aderhold with a green slugging of 2.00 in round one. Um, like we said, so that number comes from parked percentage, circle one in regulation, and circle two in regulation. And... I was talking about, or I was talking to Evan Kearns from Statmando about green slugging, and uh, both him and I like to refer to stats or make analogies to baseball stats. And so in baseball, there's a concept called a slash line where it's someone's batting average, on base percentage, and on base plus slugging percentage. And so green slugging is similar in that it's, it has three component stats, parked, circle one in regulation, circle two in regulation. So I was considering calling that a slash line where you list all three of those numbers. And Evan Kearns told me that he had been referring to it as a crush line, which I really <laughs> like. So That's I'm going to call that a crush line. So... Ezra's crush line for this tournament was 28-83-89. Oh, my gosh. So 28% parked, 83% circle one in regulation. That's five of six, which is 15 of 18. And 89% circle two in regulation, which is 16 of 18. Yeah. Un Unreal. And for the tournament, he had fifth or sorry, for the tournament he had thirty six circle one in regulations, which is exactly two thirds. Right on fifty four holes. Yeah. So. Extremely impressive. Very good tee to green performance from Ezra. Love the crush line. Yeah, I think that's a term that'll stick for sure. Yeah, I like the similar sort of like slash line. Maybe we can come up with with another term for it on putting, you know, like their circle one and circle two putting percentage. Yeah. 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 Definitely. We'll, we'll come up with something. 
jumping to the FPO for a second, gotta mention Ella Hansen. So going into this tournament, the longest birdie streak in the FPO was six, and it had been done by three different women. I believe Katrina Allen and Haley King both did it at DDO, and then Valerie Mondahano did it, and I think it was at Portland, but I don't remember. Well, Ella Hansen breaks that record at the preserve, getting a birdie streak of seven consecutive holes. That is the new mark for longest birdie streak in the FPO this season. Very impressive. Staying in the FPO, we have a crush line for Paige Pierce. So Paige Pierce in round one gained 8.77 strokes on the field tee to green. That was more than anybody else by two and a half. Her crush line was 28.67.83 for parked circle one in regulation, circle two in regulation. So 15 circle twos in regulation. Yeah, and the important thing that I want to point out about this is that the in-regulation stats sort of depend on the choice of par, right? So if you have a, a hole that's really challenging to par or really challenging to birdie, you're not going to get as many in-regulations on the field as you would as a, heart, as a hole that's easy to birdie, of course. But the, the reason I make that distinction is we tend to see definitely on this course but on a lot of courses the the layouts aren't as scoring friendly for the the fpo it almost seems like the mpo are almost birdieing you know at least half of the holes whereas in the fpo that's not true the the course design is just not there yet to to have the balance be you know fair and i think that's something we're working towards but that makes page's crush line all the more impressive it's not fair to con- compare it directly to ezra's because you know the what par means on the FPO layout is different than what par means on the MPO layout for certain. Yeah, I mean they're literally not the same holes. Right. So you can't you can't take Page's crush line and say, "Oh, well that's not as impressive as Ezra's." You know, it it you know, not to take away from what Ezra did, but Page's performance is is absolutely phenomenal compared to the par on on the layout that she's playing they're different courses right right if i could set the par to par five on every single hole and you know it would sound like someone's crush line was really really poor but that's just depends on the the par of the course so just a little note that i like to make um to keep in mind another note on page pierce here Page had a streak of 35 consecutive holes bogey-free, and that ties the longest streak in the FPO this season. It is tied with Owen Scoggins, who did it in the Portland Open. That's an awesome stat. Yeah, 35 consecutive holes. The streak for a while was Kristen Tatar at 32. I forget which tournament she did that at, but broken very recently by Owen and matched this weekend by Page. Awesome. Earlier, we mentioned FPO fewest holes over par. That was three by Paige Pierce, Juliana Corver, Evelina Salonen. In the MPO, that number was two, and there was a whole host of people that did that. So that was Bradley Williams, as you might expect. Gannon Burr, we mentioned he was in the top 10. Kyle Klein, 
also in the top 10, top three, actually. And then these other two guys, Jeremy Colling and Alex Russell. Shout yeah. out to those guys. Very clean. Clean golf. Also mentioned birdie streaks. We've got some even more impressive birdie streaks on the MPO side. We had two birdie streaks of eight. We already mentioned one of them, Gannon Burr, in that final round. And Bradley Williams was also to get a birdie streak of eight as well. I think his might have spanned across multiple rounds, but I don't recall offhand. Yeah, I think the way that you calculate those swings around, right? It's it's 54 consecutive holes. Yep. All right. I think we got time for like one more good one. Ooh, boy. So all give right, me give me right. your best one. Hmm. Okay, well, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Evelina Salonen's putting. Now, she did lose strokes to the field putting so i can't say it was a good performance uh in general when looked at across the entire field but it was much better compared to her season average so in c1x she putted 55 percent that is leaps and bounds over her season average of 41 percent and she only lost uh 3.7 strokes to the field in c1x and 4.3 total. So yeah. again, I know that sounds silly to say she only lost X strokes. Um, We're used to seeing her lose like like double digit strokes putting on the field. Yeah, and seeing her lose more than anybody else. And that was not the case this weekend. There were like seven or eight women who lost more strokes than her, which was more than 10% of the field. And her putting, I mean, she literally made like 25% more putts in this event yeah, than her season average. And it showed in, in her finish, right? She, she ended up fifth in the tournament. Yeah. Awesome. Love to see it. So we're going to wrap up here by just quickly t- doing a little look ahead for U.S. women's. Jesse and I are both really excited about this upcoming tournament this weekend. So I... I don't know much about the courses they're going to play. I, I'll admit that, but I just got to ask who, who you, uh, who are you picking? So I don't know a ton about the courses this weekend, but I have been hearing that the course is a little bit, or the course is, I should say, are a little bit on the shorter side. And so I'm starting to consider some new names that I don't usually consider for that top spot. So okay. the first and foremost is Owen Scoggins. Yep. I think it's not going to push her distance demands as far as some of these other courses. And, I mean, even at Portland and Beaver State Fling, she's still finishing very high in those events. Yeah, she does fine. Which are courses that demand a lot of distance. But I think if she's going to win a premier event this season, I think this this is the best shot. So... I really like her. I know she just finished in 16th this past weekend. So hopefully that's not a momentum killer. Um, it seemed like she had a good attitude about it. Just looking through uh, what she's posting on Instagram about it. So I like her a lot. I'm looking at players like Alexis Mondahano to have finishes maybe above uh, their expectations, so to say. 
I don't know that I'm going to pick her to win it just yet. Um, she doesn't really have a lot of experience on the lead card in the limelight, especially at a major. Right. But I think she's someone who could surprise people this weekend. But it's hard for me to steer away from the familiar names. So yeah. the Paige Pierces, the Katrina Allens, the Valerie Montejanos. I yeah. think if I had to put a name down, I think I have to pick Paige. I think she is riding momentum from this past weekend. Based on her stats, it looks like every part of her game's dialed. And it's just hard to convince myself to pick against somebody like that. I I think I got to agree with you. I I I had Paige written down as well. Notably just a reminder, Kristen is not going to be playing at US Women's. Um, I absolutely would have picked Kristen if Kristen was playing this weekend. Yeah, she certainly would have been in the mix for me as well. I don't know if I would have picked her to win outright, but certainly a name you got to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I very will say this though. If it if the strokes gained T to green or just the T to green game in general is not as much of a separator in this event. I would consider looking at Katrina Allen as well because when she gets hot with the putter, yeah. it is Her it is something putting. that I don't think any other player in the field can match. Yeah. Uh, even those putters who we typically see at, at the top of the top. She's one of those Adam Hammes, Paul McBeth, where when that circle two putt gets hot, it stays hot. Yeah. So would not be surprised to see her at the top at all. No, me either. I, I think it's going to be a close race, whoever it is. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, like you said as well, that these courses set up for some good separation from a different, a, a bunch of different parts of these players' games. And it's, it's really cool to, to think that hopefully there will be some other names that, you know, maybe somebody like Own, who you wouldn't traditionally be your first thought as somebody to win one of these majors. Maybe she has a great weekend and, and comes away with it. It's certainly in the cards. Okay, so that's going to wrap up what we've got for this episode. Be on the lookout soon for another episode. We're going to do sort of a special feature where we talk about what it means to be an elite player and what it means to have an elite performance. So I think that will be posted definitely less than a week from when this episode is posted. And please let us know what you think about this sort of new format where we do maybe two shorter episodes per week, closer to 45 minutes rather than the, the hour and a half that we st typically do. Couldn't have said it better myself. I'm certainly excited to talk about, you know, what, how we define elite uh, when it comes to statistics and just in general, the concept of taking something that's kind of subjective and trying to put analytical guidelines around it and that exercise of coming up with definitions for things that don't have clear objective definition is uh, something that really excites me. So I hope everyone tunes in and we could use some feedback on what people think of that kind of structure. Yes, absolutely. And with that, we will see you later. Peace.